Okay, big, brave, bold question here. How many of you have ever found yourself wrestling with what we would call peer pressure before? At some point in time in your life, peer pressure, okay? All the ones you, you didn't vote because peer pressure, right? You're like, I can't, I can't, can I say that in church, right? That's what we do. We just come to peer pressure all the time. I, I was thinking back on ways in which, you know, I, I had experienced that. In fact, we were having a conversation. My kids are getting old enough to ask some like, bigger questions of life, like, Dad, when was, when was your first kiss? And uh, I just thought, I'll just share that at church, because that seems normal. And um, But I, I, it was uh, purely one of the most awkward uh, peer pressure-induced experiences I've had in my whole life. I had gone to a brand new school. I was in sixth grade. And the, 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 all the cool kids were like uh, going steady. I don't even know whatever that means at sixth grade, going steady, because there was no like t- texting or internet or phones or anything. There was just air. And so... Uh, so you were going steady, and so I was going, uh, so every, all the cool kids were in that group, and they were all going steady with each other, and then there was like the next tier down, and you were trying to get up into the cool tier. And so uh, the, there was a, a girl who was like the next tier down, and so it was like, I guess we have to go steady, and then there was high, high, high peer pressure for us to kiss. And I don't know if anybody else ever did that. I just was the one experiencing the peer pressure, so literally like a movie, after school, like I'm, it's like the peer pressure's happening, and I walk up to the girl, uh, and uh, then everyone's encircling us, <laughs> and like I don't, I don't even. All of a sudden, my world's devolving. I'm like, what? And it's, I, I'm starting to get like, what's happening here? And then, so we walk up to each other, and then legitimately, like, pucker up as tight as you can. And then we smacked faces real fast. I'm pretty sure our teeth hit. And then we just, and I, and I was like, okay, I did it. I don't know what I just did. And just, just for the record, you kids in here, uh, ho- never do that. It's just the worst, worst thing ever. And I, I, re- I regret every other kiss I de- give away to anyone else but my wife. So just for the record, truly. That was uh, the teeth smacking. It's not, it's not worth your thing, uh, your life, okay? Just don't do it, okay? Just let's settle there, okay? But this is what peer pressure does is it forces you into doing things and coercing you into things that are really fake. They're not real. No one actually ever values or appreciates being forced or coerced into something or feeling peer pressured towards something. My fear is that actually religion feels that way all the time. There's so much about religion that feels forced. It feels fake. There's often like this coercion to do things. And we end up having these rules. These are the things that you're supposed to do and not do. Here are the ways that you're supposed to operate and not operate. Here are the ways that you can be in, if you will. And the problem then with religion is that so many people's experience is that religion is exhausting. It doesn't feel life-giving in any way. It's coming from a lot of being forced and prodded and pushed. Why do we feel that way? Is because whenever we have these expectations of whatever it is that religion is calling us to, we find we're constantly falling short. Maybe it's the pastor or the church's expectations or parents' expectations, family's expectations, even our own expectations of ourselves. 
We read this Bible about this infinitely great and glorious God, and we find ourselves not measuring up, and we don't meet the expectations, and we find ourselves, or we see ourselves often failing or falling short, not just every once in a while, but sometimes all the time. And so the question is, what do we do? What do we do when that actually happens? And what often happens, we do what our first parents did. We just do what our first, and I'm not talking about your mom and dad. I'm talking about all the way back, tracing our lineage all the way back to the very first parents, Adam and Eve. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter three on the day that they came around and they thought, you know what? This God's got all these kind of ways of operating and things to do, and I want to do it my way. I think it would feel better if we just did things our way, and they turned their heart and back away from God, and they chose to do their own way, and they sinned, and then all of creation since then has been marked with this thing called sin. And the question is, what did they do when they found themselves having failed or missed the mark? What did they do? Genesis 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. He's right there looking for relationship and connection right in the cool of the day. And the man and the, his wife hid themselves. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They hid. They ran away and hid. And that has been the rhythm ever since it's been perpetuated over and over that when we fail and fall short, we find ourselves wrestling with sin. What we often do is we run and hide in shame. And effectively what happens is the shame starts to become the lens by which we view God. It becomes the lens by which we view our lives. Our new identity starts to be wrapped up in shame. And you know what happens when our lives get wrapped up in shame? There's one of two ways that we get to start operating. It's one of two things that happen when shame starts to set in. One, we become exhausted trying to make ourselves good to try to do the good things, to try to get back to even, to do some good things in order to feel okay, to maybe cover up for some of the bad. And we try to think, well, I need to be a better husband or a better wife, or I need to be a better parent, or I need to be more patient. Got to be more faithful to help out people who are in need. and Got to stop trying to get my own way all the time, be more helpful. We say all those things, and we start looking around, and what we do is we begin comparing ourselves to everyone else. And I wish I was more like him. And I wish I could be more like her. And shame has this way of pressing us into trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to make ourselves better. Or we go the other direction. What we do is we just numb ourselves. When the when we fall or fall, when we fall short or when we fail, we wrestle with sin, what we tend to do is we're going to numb and we'll push it down. And we say things like, well, at least I'm not like Hitler. I mean, we'll just find whatever. At least I'm not a mass murderer. Or listen, I'm, you know, I pay my taxes or I always remember flowers for my anniversary or serve at the church or whatever the thing is. At least I'm not like that guy or at least I'm not like that lady. And we find ourselves constantly in this tussle. When we fall short, trying to somehow make sense of the world. And so we'll push feelings down, shame, 
that we experience and we start justifying that at least we aren't that bad. Church, that is religion. Comparison and shame. And what we get to discover pretty quickly is that religion doesn't save. Not only does it not save, it offers zero rest. Doesn't bring life to our soul. It doesn't compel us in any real way. The trying to keep up with the Joneses or just trying to push down the other ones, whatever it is, shame, guilt, we just press and it doesn't bring life. We can remind ourselves and try to remind ourselves, at least I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not the bad guy. And as sure as we do that, we'll have days where we know we were the bad guy and we fell short. We've all experienced it. Times where you blew it with your spouse or your kids, or we experience anger and arrogance or pride or jealousies from what other people have or judgmentalness towards those. And what we find is that most people find themselves stuck somewhere between religion and shame, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting. It doesn't bring life. Neither of them can save us from ourselves, and neither has the power to give us rest. And so here's the question. What do we do? Enter Jesus. Because Jesus comes and he changes everything. Before we uh, go any further, I want to just say this. It is entirely possible that even as you sit here, you guys joining us online, as we're here, it's entirely possible that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Bible have all been wrapped up in this clean-looking package of religion that's been given to you. It's, impos it's, it's possible that that has happened. And if you're in that place and you find yourself doing that constant wrestle of trying to justify or trying to make it through between trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or justify, hear this. Jesus comes and changes everything. He changes it all. In Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6, he begins to share and teach. It's, one of the, it's often known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins to unpack and he starts saying things that totally change everything, that totally moves. He, he says things like, no, 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 listen, you don't understand who you are. You're like a city on a hill. You were meant to be one who's lit up. Shining, bright shining. That's what Jesus sees about you. He says stuff like, listen, you've heard the, the religious phrase, thou shall not murder. He says, I want you to hear something. We're not here just to check the boxes and say, oh, that's okay, good. Didn't do that today. What he says is, I want you to know that if you actually allow anger and bitterness to inhabit your soul, that will kill you. He starts changing the game. He says, that guy or that girl that you think is your enemy, just here's the truth. They're not the enemy. 
there's a totally different enemy. And if you know who that enemy is, then guess what? You're free to love the one who persecutes you. Because there is no enemy in this life except for the dark prince of the age. So he's putting all things back into perspective. And then Jesus goes and does what is so amazing. He just chooses these real deal guys to be his followers. Just grabs several guys. Half of them were just fishermen, just normal blue collar dudes, just trying to make a living for their family, trying to eke through life. He says, I want you guys to come with me. Grabs a white collar worker, tax collector, one of the lowest forms of, of Jewish society because he was working for what they said is the, the enemy. He had given himself over to collecting taxes and swindling from other people. He said, I want you to come be a part of this. And this, he says, with all of, with these normal guys, here's what I want you to hear. I'm gonna change the world. Not because of who they are, but because who I am in them. Jesus starts to change everything. And hear this, even though these guys aren't the religious elites, I want you to hear this. They all grew up going to church and doing the church thing and saying the prayers and hear this, checking the boxes. And Jesus wanted to change that. And in Luke chapter 11, they actually come to Jesus and they say, would you teach us to pray? Do you teach us to pray? They actually ask him, teach us to pray. Now listen to me. These men, as normal dudes as they could have been, as they were, hear this. They've been praying every day their whole lives, every morning, every night, every mealtime, at the end of the week, every Shabbat from Friday night to Saturday, at every gathering in their synagogues, at every year for the feasts in Jerusalem, praying, 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 praying. And yet, these men come to Jesus and they ask this question, would you teach us to pray? They've prayed thousands and thousands of times. Why are they asking this question? Because Jesus knew that with religion, you can do all the prayers and never actually meet with God. You can do all the prayers and never actually meet with God. You can show up to church and never actually experience life. You can say good moral things and believe in doing good to other people, and hear this, not be full. And my concern is that some of the Western church has been marked more with religion than it has been with just Jesus. And Jesus wants to change the whole game for everybody. He wants to reclaim every one of you, myself included, and say, no, I have much more for you than doing the things and checking the boxes and trying to navigate somehow between religion and shame. I have more for you in this life than that. And so here's what he says. I'll teach you how to pray. Of course, I'll teach you how to pray. 
And this prayer is going to help kill, hear this, it's going to help kill the religion in us. Or it's going to help, what I might say, it's going to help kill the religious spirit in us. That's what this prayer is meant to do. What we get to begin to see and experience for how Jesus teaches these men to pray. And so what we're going to do over the next several weeks this summer is look at this way in which Jesus teaches these followers to pray and to see and experience the life that actually comes from it. And so what we see in Matthew 6 is the same one that where they ask him in Luke 11. He gives the same prayer in Matthew chapter 6, this world-changing scripture message that he gives to thousands. He's preaching to thousands, and he gives this prayer. We'll take some time over the next few weeks to go through it, but here's what I believe this prayer which is often known as the Lord's Prayer, has actually been co-opted to be one of the most religiously spoken things you might have ever heard in your experience in the church. In fact, if I say the Lord's Prayer, you're like going back to a time where you like memorized it and going through it, and you could say it probably right now. If you go to grow up in church, it's entirely possible you know it exactly. And if you went really far back into church, you know the King James Version, and you're calling God art and all kinds of stuff, all right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. This beautiful prayer that Jesus wanted to release to give life to the church has been co-opted and brought into that religious mindset. And all I want to do over the next several weeks is pull the cap off and say, Jesus, what are you saying to us about how we relate with you and your father? And what does it look like for us to have thriving, powerful, life-giving, real and authentic interaction with the God of the universe. Because that's what he wants. And that's what he's going for. Matthew 6, we'll start in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today or this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Today, we're just going to take a look at this first sentence and just let it wash over us this week. That's my prayer. So we can just take this first sentence and just let it wash over us this week. Now, we'll look at it. It says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's absolutely critical just to stop for a moment and recognize what Jesus is saying here. Because who gets to call God Father? Certainly God was kind of known generally. Only a few times in the Old Testament is God described as Father of a nation. But Jesus actually gets into a conversation in John chapter 8. He starts arguing or he's actually having a conversation with the religious elites of the Pharisees, and they're going back and forth. And they're saying, well, our father is Abraham. 
And Jesus says, well, you need to understand, I come from our Father. He's talking about his heavenly Father. And they keep going back and forth trying to wrestle through whether or not they are actually in the Father or know the Father. And he says something so profound. I want you to see in John chapter 8, verse 42, he says to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Here's what Jesus wanted to clear up. Is to say what a rich and powerful privilege it is to call God Father. Because what Jesus was doing was taking it out of the stratosphere and saying, no, you don't understand. If you... you, you you elites who have been doing all the prayers and following all the rules, you've missed not the transcendent God, you've missed the heart of the Father. And when Jesus says, our Father, here's how you pray, our Father, what he's saying is it's time to know God in a real and deep way. This is what I'm calling us into. Not relating to God through religion, relating to God as a father. Jesus saying, I'm going to pull prayer. I'm going to pull prayer out of the clutches of religion, and I want to begin to give you an actual real relationship for you to lean into. Because prayer first is about a relationship with a good father here. It has to start there. If you want your prayer life to take a different road, to move into a place that feels more powerful and more life-giving for you to experience all the fullness of what was in Jesus' heart as he gave this precious prayer to his church, hear this. It has to first start with just coming to a good dad, a good father, not coming to a judge any longer, right? We're coming to a dad. Religion says, come to the judge to plead your case. God's saying, I want you to come because I've already pleaded your case for you in Christ. So I want you to come and be with me. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, like a movie scene or wherever, where they're like, someone's in real trouble. And they're like, God, if you'll help me out here, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Right? And they start doing the bartering thing with God. If I could barter with you to get somehow into your good graces, that would be great. And Jesus is saying, no more bartering with God. You have his favor because you're his. If you're in Christ, in and through Christ, you, get to, you don't get to call God Father if it's in and through Christ. And he's going to make that clear over and over and over throughout Scripture. And if you're in Christ, that you get to come and you have a Father and you're totally his. You want to know how to start a prayer life. If you want to know how to begin like having a real and authentic prayer life, it just starts with simply coming to a father, just to a dad to belong, right? You may have royally messed it up today or yesterday or this week or this past month, 
But every one of us needs to be able to just come to a father to just belong. To pray, hear this, to pray our father is to declare, I belong to the father. To say that with our mouths is to say, I belong to you. That before I can move on, I need to know what you have to say, right? Kids, kids love, they love to hear from their dads, their moms. They, they love to hear how much their parents are proud of them, right? No, and, no, and, and no matter how bad they mess up, that they're still loved and valued, accepted, make a point all the time. Our kids get to do cool and amazing things, but I just, on a semi-regular basis, just like to grab one of my kids and say, hey, if you never play another basketball game again for the rest of your life, you need to hear this. You are, I love you so much. You're so valuable to me. And just getting to say that every once in a while. And then like, hey, let's, let's work harder on the you know, jump shot or whatever, but, right? But, but it's important to just to say in the middle of those things, hey, you matter. You belong to me. You don't have to do anything. I'm just going to love you forever, right? Because good dads and moms, they cheer their kids on, right? And we know this from the get-go. Your kid brings home the noodle art, and you're like, that's amazing. No, it's not. It's noodle art, right? You're treating it like it's Rembrandt. You're just like, oh my gosh, I can't. Why are you treating it like it's Rembrandt? Because what you're actually saying is, you're amazing. The noodle art's going in the trash, like as soon as they forget it. <laughs> or nowadays, you take a picture of it for whatever, you know. What you're saying, when you, what you're saying is, you're amazing. That's the heart of the Father. Hear this. That, that's our God. Whatever ways you and I have been able to exhibit that, what the scripture says is even though we're basic, even though we're evil, how much greater is our Father in heaven when we bring our noodle art to him? And he says, You're mine, you're amazing. Because you're mine. You're amazing. That's what he does. You and I are here, you'll, you and I will be stuck in religion until we hear the Father say, you have worth to me. We'll be stuck in religion until we can come to the Father to hear him say, because of my son, you're my son and you're my daughter and you have worth and value forever. I'm your father and you're my son and daughter and I love you. And we can bring those things to him. I remember when I was a kid, I uh, kicked a soccer ball into the neighbor's, uh, one of the neighbor's glass window panes uh, on their garage. So awesome. It was great. And this was the cranky neighbor, Mr. Kringle. We all have a Mr. Kringle. And, um, and I was just so deathly afraid. And I remember my first thought, and I wish... I wish it was something like, man, I really needed to go tell him, be honest. But what my first thought actually was, how can I pin this on my little brother? That was my first thought, like, is there some way? And I wish I could say it went immediately. But I just like, again, the shame thing. I just tried to like hide and pretend like it didn't happen. But I knew at some point in time, Mr. Kringle was coming out. And... So I went and I told, I remember, I told my dad, dad, I busted Mr. Kringle's window. <laughs> so, 
So you know what he does? Takes me, marches me over. We come to Mr. Kringle's front door and he stands at like nine and a half feet over. (laughs) My dad's hand never left my shoulder. (laughs) I said, I broke your window and we're gonna fix it. I'm gonna take care of it. And I don't know, I think he grunted or something like that. I don't, I don't really remember. <laughs> we went back home. And you, but you know what happened? My dad paid to fix that. He covered me. I got to do a few extra chores because there are consequences in this life. But he covered me and he walked with me. We all need to have a dad we come to when we've shattered something that day. We all have to have a dad when, it's bro- when the thing is broken that we can come to and know I'm not in trouble. I've covered. I'm covered. We can't move past the wall of religion until we start seeing God as the father that he is. So when Jesus says, here's how I want you to pray, our father. And he actually says, well, This is what it means to walk in a real life, that coming to a good father is what separates religion from relationship. And so what do you say when you come to that good father? And here's what Jesus says, hallowed be your name, which is not a word we use often. In fact, I think the closest word we use to it is Halloween, which feels not cool. But the word, actually the word literally just means sanctified or just to be made holy. So what does it actually mean here? Because we're not telling God, I want you to be sanctified and made holy. You are the holy one. That's not what Jesus is saying either. What's he actually saying? What he's saying here is, what he means is, I treasure you. I love and I honor and I esteem and treasure your name. For us to hallow God's name is to say, Your name is where I find rest. Your name is where I find rest, and you are my treasure. There it is. This is it. You want to know how to start a really powerful and life-giving walk with the Lord? It just starts here. Not you having to figure all the things out. Not you having to fix all the relational issues. Not you having to figure out the career and all the stuff. It just starts with coming and saying, Father, I love you and I treasure you. You're my treasure. That's what, by the way, in Genesis 15, when, um, when Abraham, God's making a covenant with Abraham and he, pull, he pulls him in and he says, here's the thing. I'm gonna give you an amazing, you have an amazing, I have promises for you. I'm gonna give you family. You're gonna have land You're going to have livestock. You're going to have all the things. But when he's establishing this covenant, here's what he says in Genesis 15. But know this, I am your shield and I am your exceedingly great reward. I'm going to do all the things in you and through you. I've got incredible promises to do through your life. But hear this, I'm your reward forever. And that's the game changer. That's what God wants to do. You guys, I'm going to ask our team to come up. We're going to finish out just a minute.
Now, I want to just say this as our team's kind of getting, getting in place. Inevitably, uh, some of you are here, and when I say father, you think about your earthly father. And it's entirely possible that when I say father, you have some real hurts and wounds. That you have some experiences maybe with your earthly father that were hurtful or harmful. And the beauty of this moment is for us to be able to come and to say, I recognize that I may not have been treated rightly or fairly by my earthly father, but to be able to come to God and say, but thank you for being the father that I never had. Some of you didn't have a father or that father was not right to you. And it's a, that's a trauma and that's a pain point. But I want you to hear, if that's you, you're in this place. My father got to experience, my father's father didn't want to have anything to do with him. And one of the most powerful moments of his life was when he came to the Lord, he was deathly afraid of having kids because he didn't know because how his father treated him. And he came to God and he said, I don't know how to, I don't know how to be a father. <laughs> and he came to the Lord and he just, in his heart, in his soul, he felt like God said to him, yeah, but I'm your father and I'll teach you. I'll show you. This is what our good father does. Even if you didn't have the right one on this earth or a good one, or a life-giving one on this earth, there is a Father who is for you, and He's ready to redefine the entire name of what that means. You guys stand. Here's what I want to do. We're going to just finish in worship, but before we do, and you guys can play, um, before we do, I just want to ask you this question, and it might even be a little bit awkward. I'm not going to ask you to come up here and say it out loud, or, but here if you will, just close your eyes. I'm gonna give you just two minutes. And here's what I want you to ask. This might be a little bit different than any question you've ever asked the Lord before. But I wanna take two minutes and just, would you ask God this question? Father, how do you want me to enjoy you this week? Here's the question. God, how do you want me to enjoy you this week? Enjoy you. Father in heaven, we come. You're our treasure. Do you want, how do you want us to enjoy you this week? I'm gonna give you just a moment. Would you just ask the Lord that question? this week.
how you want us to enjoy you. I pray we'd experience it. How can we come to you in a real and authentic way, past the wall of religion and into the relationship that you've called us into, where our lives are changed and transformed? Show us this week how we can come to you that way. I, I just pray right now I would break shame and guilt right now off every person that feels like guilty. I can't come to God because I've messed up too much or I've done the thing or I've just been so far from the Lord. I haven't read the Bible in years or whatever. The, all the excuses we bring, God, would you just tear those down in the name of Jesus? I'm asking you right now, would you tear down every lie that would keep us from enjoying you this week? We want to enjoy you this week, Father. We want to enjoy you, our Father, who's good. Come on. Lord, would you do that in our hearts and our lives? We're going to worship here and just make this declaration to the goodness of Jesus. And as you sing this, would you purpose in your heart to enjoy the God of the universe this week? Don't just sing a song. Purpose in your soul to treasure God this week. Let's sing.